0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: We're looking tonight at Exodus chapter 18, And as we get closer and closer to God's rendezvous with His people at Mount Sinai, we have in this chapter a kind of an interesting interlude, uh, which shows us some more about Moses, some information about him, and his various roles that we would not have had if we didn't have this chapter. And so it's a fascinating insight into Moses as a family man, really, uh, as a man who had a wife and a father-in-law in particular, and a godly pattern, I think, for good relationships with in-laws we could get out of this chapter, which is always, I think, beneficial. Um, But also in the second half of the chapter, we have Moses' role as a godly magistrate and the advice that Jethro gives to an overwhelmed spiritual leader. That's really the focus of this chapter. Listen to uh, Exodus 18, verses 1 through 27. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, Heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father in law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, "'Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and of Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians.'" And now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. And have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. So the focus of this chapter is a visit from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Now Jethro, it says, is a priest of Midian, and this is an interesting word. Realize that this is right before the Aaronic priesthood is established at Sinai. And so this man, I think, was similar perhaps to uh, Melchizedek in that he was a godly man who worshiped, I think, the true God and uh, was a priest in Midian. Now later on, the Midianites would be Israel's great enemies. Uh, they would be the ones who would need, who would sweep down and take from Israel everything, and it was Gideon that uh, delivered them from the Midianites. So it's amazing how relationships can go bad over the centuries. But here Jethro is clearly a godly man, and he comes to bring a blessing to the people. But he also comes because he wants to congratulate Israel and Moses and to share in the happiness. He's heard general reports, I believe. I think he knows in general what God has done up to this point in the Exodus, but now he wants to hear some specific things. So that's one of his reasons. He wants to come and just celebrate. He just wants to praise God, but he also wants to bring Moses his wife and his children, his two sons. Presumably after the conflict that Moses and Zipporah had over circumcision. It's very difficult to know in Exodus 4 exactly what's going on there. But there was some kind of disagreement over circumcision. Uh, Moses sent Zipporah away. Uh, We get more insight here in this chapter over that interaction. But Moses sent her to her father to to be cared for. I think if we're going to look at it in a positive light, we don't really have any comment from Scripture whether this was a good or a bad thing. But if we look at it as a positive thing, it was that Moses and Aaron had to concentrate completely on the mission before Pharaoh, a very dangerous mission and that Moses uh, thought it was best for his wife to be with her father so that she could be protected and cared for, similar to a man perhaps going off to to war, uh, to a, a very dangerous place, and so it would be. So that would be a positive way to look at it, but as we say, we don't necessarily have a comment from Scripture on this. All we know is the simple fact that it was was Jethro who was caring for Zipporah all this time and also for the two children. Now, as we see these two men greet each other, in verses 7 through 12, we have a, a pattern for godly family relationships. Look at it again. In verse 7, it says that Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him. Here we have a kind and gracious greeting between Moses and Jethro. You know, it's it's important uh, for a godly leader like Moses not to forget his social graces. You know, it's funny, the more uh, important people become and, and the higher they get up in the world, the more they feel they don't need to be polite anymore. They can even become very rude and brusque in their interactions with people. Uh, being godly and important as a leader apparently does not free you from the requirement to be courteous and socially polished. And so he comes and he greets him. But even more, we see the humility of Moses. It says that they greeted each other in the NAS in verse uh, 7. It says, they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So all it says in the NIV is they greeted each other. But uh, I think the NAS does a little bit better translating. They really inquired of each other as to how it was with each other. Now, I think America tends toward rudeness in terms of social interactions. If you go overseas you see how much time people take with each other even when they greet each other on the road. I mean in Kenya you're gonna be there for five or ten minutes asking about husband or wife, children, extended family, village, everybody. I mean and you're going to ask and you're going to want to know how everybody is. Um, When I was working I remember there would be people you would ask how how they were doing and they would really tell you, you know, and, and as an American, I was like, do I have the time to really hear how this individual's doing? Especially that one that I have in mind, it was never going well. And so, you know what I'm talking about when you say, well, how's it going? Well, you know, and then and then you begin to realize we are too busy for people. But here in this culture, they took the time to inquire of each other as to how it was. Now realize they hadn't seen each other in a while. And uh, I think there was a lot to inquire about. But the welfare here, the word welfare, they asked each other of welfare. The word is shalom or peace. What is, your, what is the nature of your shalom, your peace, your well-being, your prosperity? Is everything well with you? So it was a, a deep and uh, considerate encounter here. We also see Moses showing great humility in his relationship with his father-in-law. And I think a rightful understanding of honoring age. He bows down before him. Now realize that Moses is over 80 years old at this point. A great leader of a nation. He's a godly man and he's the one down on the ground in front of Jethro. I think that's a great picture, isn't it? I mean, When you think of Moses, think of this. His encounter with his father-in-law. Basically bowing down low before his father-in-law and honoring him. Uh, as uh, as if he were his own father so he shows great humility later on and I think in the book of numbers it says of Moses that Moses was a humble man in fact he was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth now I've always found that an intriguing passage since it was Moses that wrote it I believe but uh, you know when it's the truth it's the truth You know, it's one thing to say that Moses was an intelligent man, more intelligent than anyone on the face of the earth, or Moses was a powerful man, more powerful. But Moses was a humble man, and I happen to be the one telling the story about myself. I actually am the most humble man that you have ever met in your life. But it was genuinely true, because it's presented as true in the narrative. And Moses was a humble man. He really was. He was a broken-hearted, a humble leader. And so he bows down low before his father-in-law, and he greets him with great respect. And then in verse 8, he begins to recount the great acts of God. Now, I think this is a pattern, not just for godly family relationships, but for just godly fellowship, spending time well. What better topic can there be than this? Look at verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And so the great saving acts of God What a great topic for dinner conversation. I'm all for improving our dinner conversations. I'm all for improving our fellowship and making it biblical fellowship. Let's talk about the great acts of God in saving us. We have a better story to tell than Moses, don't we? We have a better story to tell than the Exodus. We have a story to tell about Christ and his death on the cross. And his mighty victory over the devil. And over that long catalog of our sins. Which are so numerous we couldn't even remember them. We have a great story to tell. Of Jesus' victory over death and his mighty resurrection. A victory the spoils of which he gives us. So that we can eat at feast and table with the Lord. What a great and majestic thing it is. To have genuine fellowship. I think we need to share that with each other better. And so Jethro and Moses. They're not going to talk about trivialities. There isn't time for that. These are two aged men who recognize the brevity of life and who want to talk about things that really matter. And so they talk about uh, great acts, the great acts of God. As a result of this information, Jethro is more fully educated about what God has done. And this is what I contend. Genuine worship begins with truth about God. You start with facts. What God has done in history, who he is, who he has revealed himself to be as the building blocks of a whole city of truth within your mind. And out of that comes genuine worship. You want to worship God, then feed your mind on scripture. Feed your mind on the great acts of God and on his attributes and you will be a glorious worshiper of God. This is the next thing that Jethro does. Look at verse 9. It says that Jethro rejoiced. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. You know, it's incredible to me. Israel, by this time, had gotten over the Exodus and now were full-time grumblers about their hardship. Isn't that amazing? In such a short time, they're done with that. That's old news, that thing at the Red Sea. I've heard that one before. I've heard it before, all the ten plagues and what God did and the Passover. We've heard that story. We want our water. We want our bread. Whatever issue was at hand, complaining about that and forgetting the great saving acts of God. Jethro was delighted, it says, overjoyed. And this shows something of his heart. This is not formal worship on the part of Jethro. This is delight. He's glad to hear about what God has done for the Israelites and how he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. And then we see that Jethro gave glory to the God of Israel. Look at verse 10. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. And so flowing out, it begins with, with the, the knowledge of what God has done, this report. And the next step for him is delight as he delights in god there's a pleasure and a joy that's internal and then out it comes in worship and praise and thanksgiving praise be the lord for what he's done Oh, I wish that we would worship like that all the time. And when we come together corporately that we would worship in that same way. Isn't that delightful worship? Don't you want to be in a church that worships like that based on the facts of God and internal delight in those facts and then out comes the praise and the worship. Praise be to the Lord who rescued you. And then he declares his faith having been confirmed and strengthened. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. This is a statement of faith, a confession of his faith. God is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Now the King James version is going to translate this a little bit differently and I like it a little better. KJV says, "Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them." Now, let me just unpack what I think the KJV saw in the verse. Now, Hebrew is notoriously difficult to translate. And so you're going to see different translations on the same Hebrew phrase. But I think what the KJV translators were getting at is this, that God took on the gods of of Egypt at their best game and beat them. He he played on their turf, whatever it was. And, And the thing in which the gods were acting arrogantly, God defeated them in each one. Now, isn't that magnificent? God took on the sun god and he made it darkness in Egypt. He took on the god of the Nile, turned it into blood. He took on each of the gods of Egypt and brought judgment on them. And he took on Pharaoh himself, the living god, and took his firstborn away and destroyed his army at the Red Sea. God, in the way in which each of these gods were acting in a high hand and arrogantly, God defeated them, each one. Isn't that magnificent? And so he's saying in verse 11, a matter of faith. I know now that God is greater than all other gods. A confirmation and strengthening of his faith. God trounced the deities in that which they were strongest and most powerful. Now in verse 12, we see godly fellowship. We see some feasting and some corporate worship. What a good time they had. In verse 12, it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in in the presence of God. And so they shared a meal together. You know, one of the things I noticed in our Thursday Bible studies, we're beginning a study now in the book of Acts, is how many times Jesus ate with his disciples after his resurrection. Isn't that fascinating? We have at least two accounts of Jesus, or at least I think it's four accounts of Jesus eating after his resurrection resurrection and that with the disciples on the road to Emmaus he uh, um, ate with his disciples by the by the sea in uh, John 21 he sat down and cooked them fish for breakfast Moving on, at any rate, he chose that for a breakfast. How many of you eat fish for breakfast? That's an interesting thing. But God chose to, you know, I think I'm just wrong. I don't know. May God change my taste buds. But at any rate, uh, then there was uh, the, uh, in Luke 24, he said, do you have anything to eat? And they handed him, again, a piece of broiled fish. And he ate it right there in their presence. And then in Acts 1, it says, one time when he was eating with them, He gave them this word. Don't leave Jerusalem, but stay where you are until you've received the gift. That's four times. Now, I don't think that's insignificant that the resurrected Christ is eating a lot with his disciples. Nor is it insignificant that heaven is portrayed as a wedding banquet in which we will sit at table with God. And nor is it an accident that Jesus, at the time of the last supper, (laughs) said, I tell you the truth, I will not eat of this fruit of the vine again. Until I or drink of it until I drink of it with you in my Father's kingdom, that's a yet future feast when we sit down and eat and drink with the Father. What a magnificent thing! You remember that the Queen of Sheba was overwhelmed with the banquet that she had at Solomon's uh, in Solomon's palace, overwhelmed with it, and was in awe at his wisdom in arranging everything just the way it was. Well, how much more overwhelmed are we going to be when we sit at table with God? The parables, Jesus uh, uh, said that the the kingdom of heaven is like a father who prepared a wedding banquet for his son and sends out messengers to invite them to come to the feast because everything's ready. This is not a minor theme in scripture. And so also, genuine fellowship is a a form of sitting at table. And it says here in verse 12 that they ate in the presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? Right in God's presence, they had a sense that God was in the center of their feast. It was a a matter of physical eating, yes, but also of, of worship. They ate probably manna together. I wonder if Jethro had ever tasted bread from heaven before. But they ate manna and they ate what God had provided and they rejoiced. They also offered a sacrifice. Jethro did because he was a priest. And so in verses one through 12, we have a a really rare glimpse, I think, into Moses' family life. We see him as a godly man, a godly son-in-law, a humble man. And we see Jethro and his yearning uh, to glorify God. Therefore, I think we see some of the fruits of the name and the reputation that God had gained for himself by his great actions in Egypt. Wasn't that always the point? That God would make a great and glorious name for himself. And that people like Jethro, the priest of Midian, would be saved as a result. That they would be drawn in to worship of the true and living God. When we make much of God's name, then people get saved. When we preach a great and exalted God and his spiritual exodus through Jesus Christ, people get saved. And so there's this uh, act of worship. Well, now we have to get to some advice. Jethro, you know, father-in-law isn't going to just come and eat, but he's going to give some advice. And so it is. I think it's a good thing if it's done in a, in a good way. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's a good way for in-laws to give advice. And then there's uh, times for them just to pray, I think. Um, and, you know, there's, it's hard to know when that is. Perspective would be different depending on the situation. But here Jethro is going to give his son-in-law some godly advice. In verses 13 through 27 we see Moses' overwhelming life as a magistrate. A magistrate is a government official. He's acting as a judge. He's judging over Israel. Uh, and we see his incredible zeal here. I mean he's taking a lot on himself, isn't he? And it's, and it's out of love for the people. He wants peace among the people. He really does. He's a peacemaker. And so if there's going to be a conflict between some individuals, he wants to resolve it. Here I think that Moses then, in effect, is a type or picture of Christ. Is he not? You look at the three uh, offices of the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. And at a lower level, we see all three in Moses, don't we? He was certainly a prophet because he spoke the word of God to the people. He was also a priest Because he offered up sacrifices and prayers for the people. But he was also, in some sense, at a lower level, a lawgiver, a judge. He was a king in this lower level. Now, I said it's not a perfect type and Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. But here he is really acting as a leader or ruler uh, over the people. Now, that's a fascinating thing, isn't it, when you stop and think about it. Do you remember when Moses began to be concerned about his people? you remember when he saw two Israelites fighting? the day after he had killed that Egyptian. And he said, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to fight each other? And one of them reviled him and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, isn't it interesting that he is, in fact, ruler and judge over them now? God had, in fact, made him ruler and judge. This is the very thing that Stephen noticed in Acts 7.35. This same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel appeared to him in the bush. The answer to the question is, God himself made me judge. God sent me to be the ruler and the deliverer. (laughs) It's interesting that now the people are very humble and glad to submit to his rulings. They come to him morning, noon, and night for his rulings and for his wisdom. And uh, what a blessing it is that they have Moses to go to. Not every nation has a godly judge, a godly ruler, who will not take a bribe, who's not interested in corruption or gain, but just wants to do what's right for the people. And so they are taking advantage of him and just about wearing him out to death. From morning until late at evening, we see Hebrews 3.5, Moses, it says, was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. And so we see the zeal, the energy of Moses, the love he has for his people. And this is a challenge to all of you who are 80 years and older, or even 70 years and older, to have this kind of energy and zeal for the work of God, to be working this hard from morning, noon, and night that God's will would be done. Now, Moses was not actually the lawgiver, was he? Neither was Moses actually the judge. He was really just the mouthpiece of God. For God is the true lawgiver, God is the true judge. He is the true king. In Isaiah 33:22, it says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. What a magnificent verse. For all the different roles there are, God is the true one. And those roles have now been committed to who? Well, they've been committed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is our lawgiver. Jesus is our king. And it is Jesus who will judge us. It says in John chapter five, moreover, the father, listen now, the father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So all judgment in the world is entrusted now to Jesus. It was Jesus himself who judged Moses and will judge all people at the end of the world. Jesus is our judge. Now, Moses is therefore a type or picture of Christ, a hardworking, loving magistrate with a great servant's heart. He sat to judge the people. He was composed and sedate, said Matthew Henry. He's not high and lifted up, but he's humble. The people are standing right around him, very close. There's meekness, there's condescension there, a lowliness. He's very accessible. And Jethro would say he's too accessible. Anybody who is anybody, it it didn't matter who you were, you could get to Moses. And you could have Moses judge. I wonder if, if two uh, eight-year-olds arguing over toys brought their case to Moses. You know, they couldn't resolve it. Well, let's go to Moses. He'll tell us whose toy it is. My goodness. So it's, it's possible for somebody to have a zeal without knowledge. And Jethro just can see that Moses' love for the people and his zeal to do God's work has gotten beyond proper boundaries. And he needs some godly advice to bring him back. And so Jethro gives him counsel. You know, it's interesting also how the humility of Moses. If you look back at chapter 17, verse 4, it's, he says of the people, what am I going to do with this people? They're ready to stone me. He believed that the people were ready to kill him, and probably some of them were. And it happened more time than just once. And here he is willing to pour himself out hour by hour for their good and their benefit. That's humility, isn't it? Moses was a great man and a great leader. So Jethro gives him some advice. Putting it quite simply, he disliked Moses' methods. He really did. He just said, this is not good. What you're doing is not good. And he gives him advice. Verse 14, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And then he, he assesses him again in verse 17 and 18. What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. And so we see that it's possible for zeal uh, for the kingdom of God, zeal for the glory of God, can uh, outstrip common sense. And you can end up uh, not you can work harder but not smarter. And that was the situation that Moses was in at this point. He needs some wisdom. He doesn't need to work any harder. He needs to work smarter. And so Jethro gives him advice uh, concerning a better model of government. He gives him a kind of a governmental model here. Uh, He should reserve to himself all direct communication with God. Look at verse 19. Listen to me now, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. So you be the one who goes up to God. You are going to be the, and that's going to be clearly the case in the next chapter when Moses alone is allowed to go up the mountain. All right? You be uh, the representative to God, direct communication. Now this was a unique honor for Moses, wasn't it? This was given to him alone. In numbers twelve, when Miriam and Aaron start getting uppity, as you remember, And they wanted kind of equal time and equal honor with Moses. God quickly put both of them in their place. In Numbers 12, this is what God says to them. Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak? against my servant Moses. And so there's a unique honor reserved here for Moses of that kind of special, in a, in a form, face-to-face communication with God himself. And so all of that would be reserved for Moses. Secondly, he was to teach the people the laws and precepts of God. Verse 20, teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. And so your role in, in the right living of the Israelites, two million strong, by the way, I mean, it's overwhelming to think of Moses handling all those simple cases for two million people. That's overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, it's a crushing burden. He said, no, no, you need to teach the people. That's your role, teaching Again and again, I come to this in scripture, the incredible value of good, solid teaching. What did Jesus do for those 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended to heaven? He taught his apostles. He spent time pouring the word of God into them. So Moses, you want to you want to diminish the, the uh, disputes between the people? Teach them the law of God. Teach them the, the decrees of God. Teach them how they are to live before God as the people of God. Thirdly appoint judges from the various families and tribes verse 21 it says select capable men from all the people men who fear god trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands hundreds fifties and tens have them serve as judges for the people at all times and so judges are going to be appointed uh, and then they are to be divided based on their ability. The better judges would have a bigger jurisdiction. They would be judges of hundreds, let's say, and then down to um, you know those that are able to handle cases for just a small tribal unit, perhaps of 10 people. And then finally, Moses, you would reserve the hardest cases for yourself. Don't you see in this advice, the very pattern of our government and our court system? You've got lower courts and middle courts and higher courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, with the democratic approach, there's always the plurality of the Supreme Court justices rather than just one individual handling the highest case. But that's our dim reflection of of this uh, virtue. Ultimately, I would like Jesus sitting on my case, especially since he died for my sins. But the fact of the matter is we see an order and a structure here, don't we? And I think many governments from this point on followed this kind of hierarchical arrangement that Jethro gave him. Now, he gives two qualifications to his advice, and this is good for us as advice givers to keep in mind. First of all, he says great care should be taken in the selection of the judges. They must be capable men, verse 21, capable. They should have piety and faith, verse 21, it says they should fear God, men who fear God, who know that there is a God above them who will assess all of their judgments and will render someday a judgment on them. And they should fear God when they give their judgments and their decisions. They should also be men of integrity and truth. Why? Because uh, if they're not trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, their hand's going to be out the back, and they will receive bribes. And that will corrupt the entire system. Because it says in Exodus 23, 8, Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. So the judge is no longer straight and true. He's crooked now. He's a crooked judge because he's accepting bribes. We can't have that. And so, yes, select capable men, but be sure they're honest and trustworthy men who fear God. And then secondly, Jethro submits his advice to God's final recommendation. Look what he says in verse 23. If you do this and God so commands, do you see that? You will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. And God so commands, don't listen to me if what I'm saying is not in conformity with God's word. Let God be the one who gives you the final advice. This is just advice from one man to another. I think it's wise advice, but it's just advice. Be sure you take it before God and see what he wants you to do. So I think that these are two good qualifications. Now, Moses humbly accepts the advice. Look at 24 through 26. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything that he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought for Moses, the simple ones uh, they decided for themselves. You know, it's easy for a powerful leader to become so arrogant he can't be given advice. I mean, nothing that you say to him is going to change his mind. He already knows what he's going to do, just like Rehoboam won't accept any of the advice of the older men, and he's just going to do what he wants to do. Moses was a humble man, and he did what Jethro said. I assume that he took his advice concerning bringing it before God, if God so commands to do this. But he accepted the advice, and he did it. You know, in John chapter 9, you remember the story about the man born blind? And uh, that's one of my favorite chapters. I mean, here's a, I don't mean to be offensive in any way, but a very simple guy, you know, kind of like a blue-collar guy who really is not a theologian or anything, but he knows who Jesus is, and and they don't. <laughs> and they studied, and they, they were just powerful leaders and, and theologically precise and all this sort of thing, And they said, you know, we know where the Messiah is going to come from, but this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the blind man says, no, that is remarkable. He opened my eyes, and you don't know where he's from. I think he's from God, for only God can open the eyes of a man born blind. Now, he's giving them advice, isn't he? My advice to you is that you should fall down and worship Jesus. Are they going to accept his advice, these who sit in Moses' seat? Absolutely not. You are steeped in sin at birth and utterly wicked. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. It's easy for that kind of thing to happen with a leader, isn't it? That that hardcore arrogance, as they say, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But in Moses' case, we don't see that. We see Moses humble and he accepts the advice. And then in verse 27, Moses sends his father-in-law on his way. Jethro goes home, he left in peace, he returned to his own country, having grown in his faith, having enjoyed a wonderful time of fellowship and worship of the Almighty God, and having greatly assisted Moses in his life and ministry. So that was a good visit, wasn't it? It was time well spent. Now what kind of uh, applications can we take out of this? First, think about the overwhelming burdens of spiritual leadership. Uh, as this church gets larger and larger, It's just a fact that it'll be more and more difficult to have full access to all the ministerial staff. I mean, it's just mathematically impossible. As much as we desire to have intimate contact with each of the people here and to know you and pray with you, it's going to become more and more difficult uh, for each one of us. It doesn't have anything to do with our love For each one of you it really has to do with our uh, with the responsibilities and this is the very thing that was dealt with in Acts chapter 6 you remember with the uh, the Greek-speaking widows not getting enough food distributed to the tables the deacons were arranged so this ministry could be handled there is an order and a structure even in churches so that the leadership burdens are not overwhelming and crushing There are great statistics of pastoral burnout in ministry. And I think it's because the expectations are very high. I think we want our pastors to be godly men. We want them to be accessible. We want them to be good leaders, good teachers, good counselors. And so they should be. And I can support each one of those things from Scripture. I'm just saying there is a limit. If there is a limit for a man like Moses, there also must be a limit uh, for others as well. And so therefore, required of pastors is a focusing again on what their ministry is. We are called to teach and preach the word and to pray. Other things take a lesser seat behind those things. So I think what it means is, and I got this very strongly out of our covenant today, we are to watch over one another with brotherly love. You know, the advice and counsel that I give is actually going to be worse in some cases than the advice and counsel another brother or sister could give. We need to shepherd each other, don't we? We need to love each other. We need to use our spiritual gifts to minister well to each other. And each one of us, including us, pastoral staff, all of us need to have compassion and care for each other. But there's a good order to it. I get that out of this. It's possible for spiritual leaders to become overwhelmed with the ministry. We also see an insight, I think, into Moses' family life. Uh, Perhaps you have a difficult relationship with your in-laws. I don't know that you do, but it's reputed to be an area that can be sore. Who is this individual, this man or woman in my life, right? Uh, They're not your father or mother, strictly speaking. And yet here's Moses on the ground in front of his father-in-law. That's a challenge, isn't it? Can we be that humble and accept a a relationship like that with our in-laws? And we see also some insight into his concern for his family, his wife, and his children. And we also see, as I mentioned, God's reputation and true worship. I've already made that point, but this is it. The more we know God the more we're going to trust him. The more we trust him, the more we're going to love him. And the more we love him, the more we're going to worship him. So let's get to know God better. Let's study his word faithfully and passionately. Let's get to know him from scripture and from experience as we walk with him. And let's let our worship flow. And then finally we see hierarchical structure, being blessed by God. You know, we we tend to be kind of rebellious against authority. We talk about patriarchy is a bad thing or hierarchy is a bad thing. I guess in the end, we'd kind of like no or something. That's anarchy, isn't it? Uh, you know, we'd like to run our own kingdom and, and that would be fine. The problem is that that makes six billion kingdoms, right? With six billion kings and queens and emperors running their own thing. And there's only one planet and we're going to bump into each other, aren't we? And so I don't think that that is possible and it certainly isn't biblical. There is an ordering and a structuring in God's universe. God has a passion for order. He really does. He, when the Israelites would set out from the camp, would go out in a certain arrangement, a certain tribe going first, and then another tribe after that. There was an arrangement of how they were to be around the uh, the tabernacle when it was set up. God has a passion for order, and so here in this chapter we get a little glimpse of that as well. The order and structure, as godly men are set over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, I think that's something for us to keep in mind.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org.